Well, as some of you likely know, I spent a majority of my adult life in the U.S. Navy's uh, nuclear submarine program. And on submarines, we devoted our time uh, amidst two different objectives, uh, the first being mission preparedness and the second being casualty response. What you might not realize is we spent most of the time on the latter, casualty response. And a, a casualty simply means that something has gone on, awry on board the ship while underway. Uh, whether it be a fire, an electrical system, or a mechanical system malfunction, or, or heaven forbid, a, a reactor malfunction. All of these are extremely dangerous and they're all extremely scary, especially when you're operating in a steel tube hundreds of feet under the water. So all submariners are trained in the recognition, response, and resolution to such casualties, to these things that go wrong. But the officer wardroom is especially charged with leading the crew through these casualties. You know, my executive officer, uh, he's the second command of the ship, he used to always tell us the best way to put out a fire is to throw as many junior officers on it as you can. And what he meant by that was it was the junior officer's responsibility to get there first. So in the case of a fire, if a fire were to break out, all the junior officers on board the ship were trained with breakneck speed, often recovering from falling asleep. They were asleep usually when this happens, it just happened to be that way. Uh, to make their way to the fire first and to announce themselves as the man in charge. And they would stay the man in charge until relieved, usually by the XO. We were trained to know when there was a threat to the safety of the crew and a threat to the mission preparedness of the vessel. Uh, we were trained to think in, in ways that were explained by a, a phrase that we would use. We would call it fighting the ship. So we were trained to fight the ship. This term, fight the ship, was meant to convey the idea that it was inevitable that the very ships that we build, the ships that um, are highly technical, the most advanced, and the most tactically ready ships, uh, these ships that we trust our, our, trust our lives with, uh, would inevitably break and require work and coordination to maintain them mission ready. You see, the submarine forces required men that were willing to take a beating from their ships and to keep pressing forward, knowing that the mission required them not only to fight the enemy, but oftentimes, and more pressingly, to fight the ship when it fought back. The Navy needed officers that were willing to fight the ship at all costs. While every analogy breaks down at a point, I think fighting a ship can help us understand the monumental necessity and task of the church officer called the elder. Now, we see over and over in Scripture that God's people, the body of Christ, that is the church, are called to know Christ and his gospel and to bear fruits for the sake of his glory. So you might say that the church's mission is to be sanctified or progressively become more like Christ. So as we read in the epistles, especially in experience today, the church is also fraught with opponents to that mission uh, from both internal and external sources. Whether it be rooted in the schemes of Satan himself, the total depravity of sinners, or even the fleshly desires of the saints within the church, the church's mission is constantly under attack. But thankfully, God has provided us leaders to protect the church and preserve its mission by leading God's people. Would you pray with me? Father, we are thankful to be here this morning to hear from your word. And we are thankful that you have given us your church. We are thankful that when you look at us, when you look at the church, you see a group of redeemed sinners and that you have given us every provision to glorify you through our sanctification. Lord, I'm thankful that you have given us your word this morning to direct us in how it is that we are to find men that are equipped and have what is required to lead your church. Now, Lord, I pray that you would speak through me to speak your truth. Amen. So thankfully, the mission of the church is not at a loss. So God has provided us leaders or elders, as we will see. And he's provided these leaders to preserve the church and to grow the church in holiness. And he's given us a blueprint to follow. He has told us the what, how, and the why men are to lead. Specifically today, we will read in Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through 9, that elders lead in three distinct ways. This will structure our time and also serve as our timeless truth this morning. So elders are to lead the church, number one, into holiness. Churches are to, excuse me, elders are to lead the church, number one, into holiness. Number two, the church 
is to be led by men through proven character. And number three, elders are to lead the church by true conviction. Would you turn with me in your Bibles to Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through 9, and we will begin. So we start in verse 5. We hear Paul, he says, For this reason I left you in Crete. So the passage opens with a clause, For this reason I left you in Crete. Okay, knowing this church, all of our equipping our minds are now asking the question, well, what is the reason? For some reason, Paul has left Titus, someone obviously very dear to Titus, on Crete. So let's step back and understand this context. So Paul probably met Titus on his first missionary journey because we know that Titus was with Paul during the first Jerusalem council, which was prior to the second missionary journey. So we see that in Galatians 2. We also know that Titus accompanied Paul in Corinth for the planting of that church. and was probably there for about a year. Paul mentions Titus nine times in 2 Corinthians, lamenting the fact that Titus was not with him. So we can definitely gather that Titus knew what a dysfunctional church looked like in Corinth, and he knew what it looked like to lead a congregation to maturity. We also know that after Paul's third missionary journey and imprisonment in Caesarea, Paul took Titus with him on his journey to Rome. Well, along the way to Rome, Paul and Titus stopped in the island of Crete. And there, Paul left Titus on the island of Crete for the ministry of planting churches. You see, Paul was Titus's spiritual father who had invested much of his life into training Titus and now had given Titus charge over the ministry of planting churches in Crete. So we take that context and we fast forward four or five years and Paul is writing to Titus in this epistle. Now we understand a little bit of the history of Titus and the relationship that pre-existed this church plant in Crete, we also need to focus on the epistle itself. So for us to know the meaning of our selected text, let's jump into the purpose of the letter. Paul usually gives us the privilege of knowing the purpose of the letter because he states it. So as we scan the contents of the letter, we begin to understand what was going on in, this, in these churches in Crete. We see that these churches were in shambles and without direction. In the very beginning of chapter 1, we read that there are factious members who are rebellious men. We read about foolish controversies running amok, and we read of members who are apathetic for good deeds. They are unsubmissive to authority, both church authority and civil authority. Paul even gives instructions for protecting the church from church members so toxic that they must be dismissed from the body immediately. Wow, so it, it sounds like Titus is in over his head here, and he's failing. Aside from the fact that these types of behaviors were antithetical to the new Christian faith that was being preached, Paul knew that these types of behaviors were damaging to the glory of God, to the reputation of Christ's church, especially in the midst of these pagan culture. And we know this because the recurring theme of good works in this epistle to Titus. So follow along with me as we, we scan through the contents of the letter. So Paul speaks of Christians who profess Christ, yet by their deeds they deny him. He charges young man to be an example of good deeds, and he states the purpose of why Christ even died. That purpose being that he would purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. It was the purpose of why Christ even planted churches. He speaks of being ready for good deeds amidst civil persecution, and he describes these good deeds as a means by which we meet other people's needs. And then right in the middle of the epistle, Paul is very caref careful to explain that these deeds are by no way a means to obtain righteousness, but instead these are a testimony of the saving and sanctifying work of the gospel. So that, as Paul says, we would be made heirs according to to the hope of eternal life. So Paul states this purpose clearly in the salutation. He says in chapter 1, verse 1, this letter was written for the faith of those chosen of God in the knowledge of the truth, which is according to godliness. So in other words, Paul is saying to Titus, I'm writing this letter to you so that Christ's church knows the truth, so that it is sanctified through good deeds. We can't miss the purpose in this letter. Okay, we, we've said a lot here, so follow me. 
So Paul knows these churches in Crete, they're going astray. They're drifting back into their old, fleshly, comfortable way of life, and they're denying Christ's power in the process. So what we have is Paul, just Titus' spiritual father, writing to his spiritual son to both encourage and exert, exhort him to turn this ship around. Remember, we started down this rabbit hole of wondering why, why it was that Paul left Titus in Crete in verse 5. Well, here it is. Paul left Titus on Crete to fight the ship, to restore the church to truth and godliness. So Paul has already passed the baton to Titus, and now Paul is exhorting Titus to pass that baton to other men, other men called elders. So it begs the question, what is, what is an elder? So this term that we see in Scripture, elder, uh, that Paul started using very, very early in his writings was not a new word in the context from which they lived. As the name suggests in English, within the Jewish community, there were elders. And they would have been men of prominence and wisdom, perhaps part of the Sanhedrin, or the ruling body of the Jewish religion. Or perhaps they were even rabbis within the synagogues. So this man was respected and charged with leading the Jewish community into observance of the Jewish law. So when Christ came and established the church, he also called leaders to lead the church. However, the, lead, the call for leaders in the Christian church was much higher than a call for these Jewish leaders in the Jewish community. You see, this man was not leading guilty rebels in the outward observance of the law. That was the job of the Jewish elder. But this man was charged with leading redeemed Christ followers in their love of Christ, and subsequently to lead them to follow Christ in their deeds. Now, when we speak of church leaders today, you're probably familiar with a, a myriad of different job titles. Uh, depending on your backgrounds, uh, some of these may sound familiar. Uh, we know, we've heard terms, obviously, pastor, uh, associate pastor, uh, youth pastor, reverend, director, preacher, bishop, elder, cl clergy, shepherd, depending on where you're from, brother so-and-so, uh, fill in the blank. You might have heard the term rector, priest, and chaplain. We have lots of terms that have to do with this position of leadership within the church. But when we go to scripture, we clearly see that leadership in the local church is reserved for the position of what in English is translated to elder. Okay, so hang in here with me. This is important. I need your thinking caps on at this point. Um, it's important for us to be able to understand the words that are used in Scripture so we can see through this fog of the titles that are used in, in modern-day churches. So in the original language, there are three Greek terms that are used to describe this office. So when we think about an elder, think of it as an office. It's an official office. So these terms include presbyteros, episkopos, and poimen. Now, I don't expect you to know these and even to write these down, but follow me here because it's important. The first term used is presbyteros. So translated in English, you'll see that as elder. So if you're reading in your Bible and you see the term elder, it's using that term presbyteros. And this is the most frequently used term for the office of elder. Um, it's used 66 times in the New Testament, and it directly relates to the already known definition of what an elder is. So uh, to, to Paul, to a Jew, when he reads the term elder as presbyteros, he thinks about the Jewish leader in the community that existed at that time. The second word is episkopos. So episkopos, if you're reading in your Bible and you see the word overseer or bishop, that is the word that's being used in scripture. So this word comes with slightly different connotations. So when we think about an overseer or a bishop, we're meant to think about a steward or an administrator over a group or a home. So stewardship is the key when you see scripture using that word of bishop or overseer. The last word we see is poimen. So poimen in English is usually translated into shepherd. This is especially helpful for understanding what it is the job of a pastor is. It is to shepherd. And we even see in, in certain contexts, like in Ephesians 4, where Paul says that he gave some as pastors. That's actually using that word poimen, and they're translating it as pastors. So at any point in time, if you read the word elder, pastor, overseer, 
or shepherd, it's referring to a single office. So in summary, we have three Greek, three Greek words, uh, the same office, it's elder. So we can, we can summarize and whittle down the definition to the same office, that's helpful. As a side note, I want us to understand that when we read, especially in Acts and Titus, both of the nouns for elder are in their plural form. They read elders in each town. It was always the intention of the early church uh, to have multiple elders in single congregations. It was always the intention then, and it's, I think, the intention now. So at, at Metro, it's here, here it is our desire to have as many qualified elders as the Lord provides to lead the body. So now that we know what the term elder comes from and what it means, let's dive into what it is that the elder does. So let's read in verse 5 again. For this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. So we see Paul early on giving an admonishment. He's admonishing Titus to set in order, which is probably better translated to fix what is broken. So we briefly discussed the drifting and the apostasy of the Cretan church, and here we see a charge to fix what is broken. It's an admonishment to Titus to find other men who would take the baton, the baton of leading God's people into faithfulness and to fight the ship. It's been said that leadership is getting people to do what they don't want to do and to like it. While this analogy breaks down theologically, the idea, I think, is helpful. Perhaps we change it to say that in the Christian context, leadership is getting Christians to do what Christians are made to do regardless of the cost. You see, the cost in Crete was high for leaders to drive change against the growing tides of persecution. So I'm sure Paul shared Peter's sentiment when Peter wrote in chapter 4, he says, in all this, they are surprised that you do not run with them in the same excess of dissipation, and they malign you. Specifically in Crete, we read that Titus needed elders to lead the church out of rebellion, out of divisiveness, out of idolatry, and out of hypocrisy, and out of their lack of fruitfulness. And they are to lead them into becoming a church that was zealous for good deeds and rooted in the gospel. I feel it necessary at this time to, to clearly define a word that I've been using that we've been hearing a lot this morning, and that term is leader. The concept of leadership today is often quite different than the biblical sense that we read here, especially when thought of in the context of the Christian church. If a man is charged from taking someone from point A to point B amidst resistance in some circumstances, he must possess and exert authority among other attributes. Now, we all agree that authority has been abused throughout history. We've all seen it. Couple that with the growing ideology of critical theory, which has dug its heels even deeper than we know into the church. We come out with this idea that true leadership with authority is often forbidden in the church. In fact, there's a new wave of leadership training that's going around in the business world, and I've experienced it recently having to take it. And there's a sleight of hand that's happening in reference to leadership. It's, it's redefining what leadership is. This new wave of leadership training exchanges the authority of a leader for self-deprecating transparency. It, uh, it swaps the conviction of the leader for the affirmation of all. It exchanges the character of a leader for raising diversity to the highest good among all attributes. You see, the definitions have changed and the consequences are being felt throughout the churches. I can't imagine this type of leader ever leading a cause that came into contact with any form of resistance and challenge. The consequence now in the church is that the pastor in much, much of Western America is not thought of as a, a true leader, but he's merely a teacher and a counsel giver. How does, how does this supposed to work? Uh, he does not expect to have authority in the church, nor do the congregations respect him as one who has authority. You see, this type of pastor would not have been able to carry the baton 
that Paul was charging Titus to carry, to turn these churches around in Crete. And it wouldn't be the type of leader that would be able to fill the role now as a pastor. I can't imagine a Navy commanding officer that merely gave advice and hoped for the best. I, I wouldn't want to be on that ship. You see, the biblical need was then, and it is now, to find men that lead the church into holiness by actively calling them to follow, both formatively in instruction and sometimes correctively in rebuke. Now, we're a little on edge because a leader with authority can do great harm. Thankfully, God has given us the job requirements for these men. Once we know and trust God's design for leadership in the church, the leader, you see, is no longer the oppressor, but he is the loving shepherd, the type of leader that we want and we need in churches. This leads us to our second point. The elder has been called to lead the church through proven character. At this point, you can almost hear Titus saying to Paul as he's reading this letter, yes, I know that the Cretan churches, uh, they're in shambles. They need to be set in order. I agree. I get that, Paul. But what type of man am I looking for to lead these churches? One might assume that it's one who's well-spoken or has influence over people. Or maybe it's a man that's been successful in business. If he's been successful in business, then surely he can be successful in the church. Or maybe it's one that has an impressive list of relationships with prominent Christian figures. I know if this man was in Jesus' inner circle, he must be right. He must be good for the job. Well, we see Paul take a different approach when assessing qualifications. See, Paul looks at a man and looks at proven character. And the way that he defines that here is that that's a man that's above reproach. So let's read together in verse 6. He describes the elder as, namely, if any man is beyond reproach, the husband of one wife, having children who believe, not accused of indecent behavior or rebellion. For the overseer must be beyond reproach as God's steward. He must not be self-willed, not quick-tempered, not overindulging in wine, not a bully, not greedy for money. But he's hospitable. He loves what is good. He is self-controlled, righteous, holy, and disciplined. Twice in Paul's epistles, you see a list of prerequisites of proven character that must be met prior to a man taking the office of elder. By reading both of these accounts, one in Titus 1 as we're reading today, and then in 1 Timothy 3, we know that there are two main reasons why elders must exhibit proven character in order to qualify for leadership. The first reason being that proven character reveals the heart of a man that will be able to do the task. We might even say that past performance guarantees future results. Well, kind of. The second reason is proven character protects the reputation of Christ's church. And we'll talk about this one second. So one common theme we see in Scripture over and over again is that a tree is known by its fruits. And Paul knows this. And we read this in Luke chapter 6 where Jesus says that, For there is no good tree which produces bad fruit, nor on the other hand a bad tree which produces good fruit. While it is true that even deceivers can fake it for a time, just consider Judas and Simon the sorcerer we read in the New Testament, always remember that time and truth always go together. Time will reveal, reveal a true man's nature. You see, both Judas and Simon for a time had convinced Jesus' inner circle that they were both converted, born-again believers, and then they later proved to be deceivers. We can safely say, reading this, that the fruits of salvation are a much clearer indicator than confessions or associations when assessing a man. This biblical principle is foundational in number one way that a man's spiritual readiness or maturity is to be considered. It's important that we don't gloss over this truth, so let's read in Paul in 1 Timothy 3 where he makes this very argument. He says, An overseer must be one who manages his household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. For if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? In other words, Paul is saying, if you want to know a man is capable in character, 
begin by looking at the way he leads his family. One direct practical application to this principle is the way in which a church should go about raising up and calling new elders. Now, if, if past performance is to be the indicator of future performance, the church can no longer trust merely in the education of a man, the professional experience of a man, the level of intellect or the association that he has with prominent figures, or even his ability to perform the basic functions of a pastor that we might describe as preaching, teaching, marrying, and burying. We have a different set of rules that we're looking at now. You see, now, in Paul's mind, the character of a man is front and center when looking for pastors, and the character of a man is only truly revealed through an intimate discipleship relationship. We know, we know that Paul had this intimate relationship with Titus. And through this intimate discipleship relationship, these aspiring men are shepherded to lead biblically, and then they're watched for a time. Barring rare extenuating circumstances, this is to be the norm. This is why at Metro, when men come to the church aspiring to lead, first we would rejoice with them, and then we would say, we would like you to serve unnoticed for a time, and we will watch you. Regardless of who you are and, and where you come from, the church has to know how a man can love the body before he's given responsibilities. To sum that all up, a shepherd's character must be assessed intimately by watching the fruits of his life. The second reason that an aspiring pastor must have his character proven is that the church's reputation is on the line. We know this from Scripture, like we read in Ezekiel chapter 36, that God is jealous for his name. We have to know that fact, and we have to be 100% convinced that God is jealous for his name. In Ezekiel, he foretells the destruction that he will bring upon the Jews because they had profaned his name through profaning his law. So when God's people start drifting and rebelling against God, God's name is profaned. Now we see today, perhaps more than any other time in history, that a leader's life, regardless of what context, is, is under a microscope more than ever before. Not only is it under the microscope in the immediate context from which he operates, but it's under the microscope amidst the whole world now with the internet. Uh, we see this in politics. Um, and more recently, unfortunately, in the failures of Christian evangelical leaders. I think we could all run through a list of evangelical leaders whose life work and their name, in large part, have been discredited because of their past sins. In each case, the reputation of God is falsely tarnished and God's people are left in doubt. So this is a, another reason why we read that Paul requires an elder to be above reproach to preserve the glory of God's name. So the idea behind a man being above reproach is that he is void of any charge or accusation. MacArthur expounds upon this language to say that being above reproach is not even being subject to indictment, much less a trial. So at this point, one might ask, well, what is the scope of this charge to be above reproach? What man anywhere passes this test? And one might follow up and say, well, we all have skeletons in our closets. How is this man to be above reproach? Well, let's look at that. We would all agree that before becoming disciples of Christ, our lives were all disgraceful before God. Paul primarily points to the sanctified life as a Christian man, and we will get to that soon, but I think it's important that we also consider the pre-converted life. There's a principle here that's helpful in helping us think through this. The principle is this. It's not about the man, it's about the office. It's not about the man, it's about the office. You see, we often start thinking in the wrong place here. We wrongly assume that since Christ has forgiven our sins, past, present, and future, that the pre-conversion life should be off the table when it comes to considering elders. But the reality is, as Paul sees it, and as we will hear this morning, that past sins during the pre-converted life can have present impact today on reputation. Sometimes our, our past sins, they, they taint our reputation in certain circles. Or they require excessive explaining to do. Um, it's always an hindrance to the gospel 
when a man's character has to be explained because of past reputation. And again, this is not about the forgiveness or their spiritual state of a man. It's about preserving the office of elder and representing Christ in the church to the outside world. So what am I getting at? Uh, let's practice this. We would all agree that it's a very different thing to consider a man who was once known for a foul mouth 15 years ago versus a man that was imprisoned for sexual deviancy prior to coming to Christ. Bottom line, our pre-converted lives do not impact our right standing before God, but do have an impact on our reputations now, long after the sin. And this should be a factor when appointing elders. It certainly is to Paul. Now let's take a look at how the Christian's life is to be looked at when a man is being considered for eldership. So we continue reading. Paul describes attributes here in Titus that should be used as a litmus test in verifying that a man is above reproach. We continue to read. We see that this man must be the husband of one wife. This literally means that the elder must be a one-woman kind of man. So what does this mean? Well, to state it bluntly, an elder must not have been divorced to qualify. This is important, and we must understand this point because there are many that would object to this principle, especially when talking about divorce. And they would even use biblical arguments to justify their answers. But I think what we have to, to hold on to and understand is the theological principle that's at work here, which we see in Ephesians 5. When we read Ephesians 5, Paul says, Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Skip down a few verses. He says, This mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. And while there are many that will go straight to 1 Corinthians 7, which does have an allowance for biblical divorce, knowing that in rare cases of abandonment, a man or a woman is permitted to leave, the point here is that the elder must be a picture of fidelity in his marriage. And he can't be a picture of fidelity if he's been divorced, regardless of the circumstances. You see, the elder is held to a higher standard here. The objections that follow usually sound like this. Are you saying that God has not forgiven his past? Or don't you know that the Bible allows for divorce in some circumstances and we shouldn't place extra requirements on the office of elder? Again, this is not about the righteousness of a man or his position as a saved sinner, but it's about the office of elder. We praise God that he has forgiven the sins of all his people, but he has given us instructions for a purpose, and we have to heed those. Before we continue, let's also consider the single man who desires the office of elder. We obviously see Paul, who was single, and he makes a positive case for singleness for the purpose of devotion to certain ministries. So we would, we would definitely conclude that the, the aim of the text is to highlight the faithfulness to the marriage covenant when applicable. So yes, a, a faithful single man uh, could qualify for eldership here. So next we move to the next requirement. Paul says that the elders, having children who believe, not accused of indecent behavior or rebellion. So the questions at stake here are, number one, does an elder have to have children? And number two, must all elders' children be baptized believers in the church? So let's tackle the first question first. No, an elder is not required to have children. And again, we go back to the aim of what Paul is trying to exhort Titus with. The aim is assessing a man's faithfulness with the responsibilities given him. We're assessing the fruit in a man's life. With the second point, must all elders' children be baptized followers of Christ? I would say that it wouldn't make any sense for a requirement to exist for an elder to have all believing children. The reason I say that, it's, it's impossible for us on our own to save our children. It is God alone who saves. And it's also exceedingly difficult for the church to affirm the salvation of young children. That is, we, that is why we as a general practice do not baptize young professing believers. We rejoice in their confessions. We watch them for a period and we shepherd them to the point of baptism when they are mature enough to enter the church and to be shepherded by the church. So what is the requirement here? If we're saying that it's not that elders have to have all their children as believers, 
we need to look at how the word is being used. So the word used here is most often translated as, as faithful. We see this used in other places in the New Testament. So this belief is it's not a salvific belief that's accompanied by true repentance. This belief or faithfulness is re- referring to the children's faithfulness to their father's leadership. The father's task with his children is to exercise his biblical authority and leadership. He's to do this over his house for the sole purpose of glorifying God in his home, as we read in Joshua. I think Joshua has a principle here. When he draws a line for those contemplating coming back to the pagan gods of the promised land, if you read in Joshua 24, 15, he says, But if it is disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves today whom you will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served, which were beyond the Euphrates River, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. It is the Father's responsibility to echo what Joshua is telling the people of Israel. It is the Father's responsibility to lead his house in the service of the Lord. So the Father at home must be training his children in how to submit to authority so that, with a purpose, through consistent gospel feeding, Christ might save them and might bring them to follow him. So what is Paul saying here? Paul's saying, Titus, judge their leadership and faithfulness in the home by the way that their children respect their father and conduct themselves. Do they respect and obey their fathers while in the home? And is the father active in his discipline? Or is he passive in seeking comfort? You know, it's a, a travesty that we have the term PK. I'm not sure if you've heard of that term, but it's, it means preacher's kid. And the reason we have that term is oftentimes it is the preacher's kids that um, have the most rebellious attitudes within the churches. I, I experienced in this growing up, and I'm sure many of you have also. And I would argue, in terms of qualifications for eldership, having rebellious children is probably near the top of the list, along with sexual impurity, that elders are disqualified for the ministry. What Paul is saying is the reputation of the elder is so paramount that Titus needs to find men who have children that are in one sense above reproach. They respect the leadership and they live in obedience to their father. And men, just when we let out a sigh of relief because we are not elders, remember that these attributes of a godly man are God's desire for all of us. And we're all charged to lead our homes in the same manner. So let's, let's practice this principle. How are we to think about a pastor who has just had his son arrested for a DUI? Is he all of a sudden disqualified for the ministry? Well, we would say it depends on how the elder conducts his home, how he disciplines his son. Does he discipline his son to restore him to a place of submission to his father? You see, the issue is that the son obeyed his, disobeyed his father and the law, so it's an issue of rebellion. The father's job here is to discipline that rebellion and to lead him to repentance. The passive elder that doesn't want to cause problems in the house because his son is unruly is one that's quickly finding himself disqualified for the ministry. The charge for the elder is to be faithful in leading and discipling his children and for his children to submit to his leadership. Now let's continue to verse 7. Paul says, For the overseer must be beyond reproach as God's steward, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not indulging in wine, not a bully, not greedy for money. So Paul continues explaining the life of being above reproach. If you recall our study of the Greek words used for the term of the office of elder, you notice that Paul has switched which word he's referring to now. He started off saying the elder, and now we read the overseer, and he does that quite intentionally. And if you remember, the overseer has strong connotations of stewardship um, as a steward over a home, under a master, caring for the master's estate. So this word is meant to provide a stronger sense of authority as one who is a steward over a home. So this statement reemphasizes Paul's drive for Titus to find men who will put in order what remains 
but have responsibility as a steward. So not just to put in order what remains, but to put in order what remains the right way. And that's important. Specifically, the steward is not in it for self-gain, we read, or appeasing his own purposes. He has self-control over his temper. He has moderation in his liberties. He does not abuse his position. And he's not overcome with securities or pleasures that money often appear to bring. The elder is a steward with one purpose, and that one purpose is to be faithful over his house, which is the church. And this is characterized in verses 8, as we will read. Paul says that the elder is to be hospitable, loving what is good, self-controlled, righteous, holy, and disciplined. So while we would say that the man is not perfect, he must have these attributes. In our context, he is not selfish with his time, his family, or his resources. This looks like today an elder that has truly an open-door policy in his home. Not only that, a man that opens up his home at the drop of a hat when someone in the body is of need. We read that the, the elder holds fast to what God considers good. This means that he's able to discern the difference between good and evil. He doesn't wander from the truth because of outside pressure. You know, I can't tell you how many times my captain made unpopular decisions on the boat, but he did that because he was the only one qualified and capable to make the call. He knew what was best for the mission, and he knew what was best for the crew. And even though it was unpopular, he had the leadership to make the call. And I can't imagine a captain that made decisions off of what was popular. Lastly, we read that the elder is not overtaken by fleshly desires, but is self-controlled. So what what does self-controlled look like? Um, He disciplines his time, his body, his emotions, all for the sake of the office, knowing that it's the joy of the Lord that propels him in his duty. Paul knows that the elder is constantly encountering disappointments and hurt, yet he's expected to shepherd. He must remain constant and immovable for the sake of the body. Titus can't have an elder that receives the news of a lost one impede his ability to serve the body. And I'm not saying that an elder does not mourn and should not mourn or experience sadness. And I'm not saying that the church doesn't minister to the elder in a very special way in times of hard circumstance. But what I am saying is the elder cannot be crippled because of his circumstances. After all, there are, there are sermons to preach, men to lead, mem- members to minister and to care for, equipping our lessons to make, small groups to host, and if you're at Metro, there's always conferences to work towards. The kingdom work does not stop. The elders to be constant and grounded in Christ, and especially when others are not. Peter describes the, the heart of the pastor well in 1 Peter 1.24. I'd like to read it. He says, now I rejoice in my suffering for your sake, meaning the church's sake. And in my flesh I am supplementing what is lacking in Christ's afflictions in behalf of the body, which is the church. I was made a minister of this church according to the commission from God granted to me for your benefit, so that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God, that is, the mystery which has been hidden from the past ages and generations, but now has been revealed to his saints. To whom God willed to make known what the wealth of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles is, the mystery that is in you, the hope of glory. We proclaim him, admonishing every person and teaching every person with all wisdom, so that we may present every person complete in Christ. For this purpose I also labor, striving striving according to his power, which works mightily within me. You see, it's a man of character exhibiting these fruits that we have just discussed that can rejoice with Paul when Paul says that He rejoices in sufferings for your sake, that is, the church's sake. Because his greatest desire is to present every man perfect in Christ. This heart shows itself in proven character. Which leads us to our third point. The elder is to lead the church by true conviction. So Paul has just described the task of the elder in leading the congregation in sanctification, and he has given Titus the resume for the elder's character. 
So once again, imagine yourself, put yourself in Titus' shoes. He's reading this letter. Paul has just described the office, and he's getting through the list of character traits, and he's thinking, how does any man take this responsibility and do it faithfully? Titus might be thinking in the back of his mind, this is a, a recipe for disaster. What is, what, is the, what is this man to stand upon when things get difficult? Paul doesn't disappoint. So let's finish our passage with verse 9, where he describes how this task is to be accomplished. Paul says the task is accomplished by the elder, in verse 9 we read, holding firmly the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching, so that he will be able to both exhort and sound doctrine and refute those who contradict it. We know that every good leader operates from conviction at some level. Conviction being the drive to act from a settled upon cause, a foundation that you stand upon. An elder must always, a leader must always operate out of conviction. It must drive them forward, and it must be what you fall upon when circumstances get hard. In Titus's context, we read that the elder's conviction is how he exhibits these characteristics that we just read about and how he leads. So the elder's first conviction, as we read, is to hold firmly the faithful word. In a few short words, we have a treasure trove of meaning in verse 9. Paul knows that Titus has been battling against competing pagan and, and some Jewish ideas that are drawing his church members away. On the island of Crete, the Christian honeymoon is over. Normal life is setting in, real, hard life. And frankly, there are aspects of Gentile living that are appealing to the church on the island. And not only that, there are those in the church that are telling them they can have their cake and they can eat it too. They're, they're distorting the gospel. I would imagine on the island of Crete you have the same type of arguments as Paul says is being made in the church in Rome. I'm sure they're saying, why suffer for righteousness' sake when the law is no more, as we read Paul talk about in Romans 6.23. I'm sure they're saying, we can keep sinning, Jesus is gracious, the law is no more. Now, would this type of bad doctrine ever produce faithful Christians? I think we can all resound with a no, and we can be sure of that statement. But before we get too comfortable with our bookshelves of commentaries and two millennia of faithful teaching, we must understand that what seems simple to us in retrospect as biblical heresy back then is happening to us today. We have to remember that Satan doesn't have new tricks. He just repackages his tricks, right? It may not look the same today, but I assure you it is. The heresy that is coming into the church 100 years from now, they will be able to look back and think, why did the church miss it? So we are experiencing today the very things that Paul in Colossians 2.8 warns against when he says, see to it that there is no one who takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception in accordance with human tradition, in accordance with the elementary principles of the world rather than in accordance with Christ. You see, what was dangerous to the churches in Crete was not the blatant apostasy of those who were leaving the church. It was the apostasy that was being felt within the church. You started to see the integration of pagan and old Jewish philosophies into the Christian gospel. That's what was dangerous. The elder must know what is true and what is not, and he must not be influenced by these outside ideas, or as Paul puts it, philosophy and empty deception. So how is he to do this? You may say, Aaron, uh, but we have the word of God. We know what is truth. What else, what else do we need? We stand upon the word of God. And I would agree 100%, amen, we do have the word of God. But what we think about the word of God makes all the difference. Let me explain. Hopefully this analogy holds true. In American politics today, there are two very different ideologies. Each desires to claim the title of being authentic to the original design of the founders of this country. In fact, they both appeal to the same document, the Constitution. 
but they both couldn't have more divergent ideas and worldviews on how the country is to, to work. The conservative ideology is largely made up of what's called classic constitutionalists. So they interpret the Constitution as they believe the original authors meant it to be interpreted, and then they apply it to today. And then conversely, the liberal, liberal party interprets the Constitution as a living document, if you've heard that term. This means that they believe that the truths of the document can be and, and should be allowed to change the purposes to allow for progress. Broad strokes, what's the impact here? What, what difference does this make? What, what point am I trying to make? One conviction allows for eternal truth, while the other allows for truth to be justifiably changed as people change. And we know that scripture can never be changed. So let's read how Paul protects the church from the same prevailing winds that we encounter today, these, the winds of the spirit of the age. Paul charges Timothy to find leaders who will hold fast to the faithful word, he says, which is in accordance with the teaching. So what does this really mean? There are two truths bound up in these statements that the elder must be 100% convinced of and he must stand upon. One is that all scripture is true, 100%. We call that the doctrine of inerrancy. It's without error. And not only that, scripture alone is enough for godly life. We call that sufficiency. Inerrancy simply means that Scripture is the divinely inspired Word of God, free of any error. Paul is telling Titus here that the elder must hold firmly to the faithful Word, or as commentator, commentators define it, to strongly cling or adhere to something or to someone. The pastor clings to the Word of God. The elder must be totally convinced that the Word of God is completely true, free of error, and he can stand upon it without wavering, especially in the context of competing ideologies. Today, inerrancy is rightfully stressed and stood upon as a fundamental principle in interpreting the Bible, and we would all rejoice and say amen for that. It must be. At one point in time, that was not the case. Inerrancy is essential for the Christian faith, but I would argue it doesn't go far enough. Titus was battling, as we mentioned, the combining of two worldviews, integration from outside philosophies. So you had pagan religion, religious roots, and we had Jewish ideas that were finding their way into the Christian church in Crete. And Paul knows that this new false Christianity would arise if he did not stress not only the inerrancy of Scripture, but the sufficiency of Scripture. Where an inerrancy of Scripture claims that all Scripture is 100% true and without error, the sufficiency of Scripture maintains that Scripture alone is sufficient for life and godliness. We read that Paul exhorts Titus to find men who will hold firmly the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching. And that phrase is important. You see, within a, within a few decades of the early church coming about, uh, these truths contained within the Gospels and epistles were being combi combined, as we discussed, with worldly ideas and the 